0: Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argivon Neil fourouge a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now, let's get into today's conversation. Discussion about women's health should include gut health, hormonal cycle, and nutrition status as critical factors in performance ability, prevention of injury, and recovery from injury should it occur. Did you know that we need to be supporting the different phases of our menstrual cycle by varying the foods we eat and the type of exercises we do? Abby Grimm is a functionally trained performance dietitian located in Cleveland, Ohio. She works in private practice for Forward Field Sports Nutrition, where she guides individuals on using lifestyle and food as medicine to optimize their health and performance. She specializes in working with females who suffer from hormone imbalances, menstrual irregularities, and poor gut health. Abby spent years working through her own hormone and gut issues, all while competing in the sport of CrossFit, and she now brings this experience and knowledge into clinical practice using personalized nutrition and gut and hormone balancing protocols to help women feel and perform their best. Abby is on a mission to help women understand their female physiology In particular, the critical role female hormones and the menstrual cycle play in not only fitness goals, but overall human health. Welcome, Abby. Women's health, especially as it relates to fitness, is a topic I've wanted to cover for a long time. I'm so excited you're here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here
0: as well. Um, I'd love if you could, I know I explained it in the bio, if you could briefly share, how did you end up in women's health? What sort of... For that passion?
1: Sure. So, obviously, like many dietitians, kind of grew up just always loving everything about food. I loved to eat food. I loved learning about the effect that food had. And primor- primarily, I cared a lot about how it affected my performance. I grew up playing every sport in the book. Um, I was always super active and into health and fitness and um, was competitive in sport from the time I can remember. So obviously, I grew up in sport and was interested in nutrition and wanted to study sports nutrition and and how nutrition kind of impacted my performance and overall health, and um, then kind of got into really competing at the high level in CrossFit and during my college years. And this is sort of what kind of started my whole story and journey into women's health, because I actually started dealing with a lot of hormonal imbalances and issues with my menstrual cycle throughout this time period. And so there was definitely a drive to kind of get to the root of all these different symptoms that I started to experience as a female athlete. And so really, just like many of us in our careers, you know, I had to go through a lot of the the trenches to figure out why these things were You know, imbalanced in my own body, and then having gone through that process, it just inspired me to be like, I want to help women do this and not have to go through a lot of the uh, battles that I did as a as a female and as a um, as a woman that wanted to you know live a healthy lifestyle. So that is really what sparked a lot of my passion um, to do this work, not only in the world of women's health, but really for women that want to be active and want to you know be competitive in fitness.
0: Yes, I love that. And CrossFit is such a grueling sport. And it's one of those sports, I think you can't just get by by eating, drinking, not resting, because
1: it really shows up in your performance. Is that right? Absolutely. It shows up not only in your performance, but in your life, right? Because CrossFit is, as you mentioned, it's a very Um, it's, you know, it gets this rep of like, you know, you're beating yourself down every day in the CrossFit gym. And that definitely does. I can see where that reputation comes from because the workouts are very high intensity and especially for those that get into it and are competitive, they, they go hard and they kind of, you know, they dedicate a lot of their life and it's a huge commitment. But, you know, and this is what I've come to learn now is that we can do this sport in a really sustainable way if we know what to look for, how to support our performance, our nutrition, all of our overall energy needs, and, you know, still still see a lot of success with it. So absolutely though, if you are not doing the right things from a fueling and recovery standpoint, and even a mental health stress management standpoint, doing something like CrossFit can really drive you down the rabbit hole of a lot of the issues that we're probably going to talk about today.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'm so happy you mentioned mental health. And this is one of the reasons I, having worked in clinical, I'm now going towards the functional medicine area because I think you have mm-hmm. to look at every single part of the person to get that the real big picture.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um let's talk about some of the health issues that you work with your clients on. What are some of the most common ones? And let's talk about regular periods cuz I know that's something a lot of women uh it, it, they struggle with.
1: Absolutely. So right, women's health is such a it's such a broad field. There's so many different directions that we can talk about as far as women's health, but I see so I do see a wide variety of things, but You know, I'll see a lot on the spectrum of really active women who are pushing themselves super hard every single day. They kind of fall into that category of really overtraining, under consuming food, really stressed out. And this is where we see a lot of irregular and, um, actually completely missing periods altogether, menstrual cycles are irregular, and we see a lot of also generalized adrenal dysfunction. So people might've heard this referred to as like adrenal fatigue, or, um, we can also refer to it as hypo, um, HPA axis dysfunction. So a lot of times this comes alongside high slash low cortisol levels and dysregulations in the pattern that come from chronic stress. And so, um, again, not to say that individuals that are, not you know, high level athletes don't experience adrenal dysfunction, but I do see it typically in a lot of, you know, high level, very driven um, women that are, maybe they're not necessarily categorize themselves as an, as an athlete, but they're very active and um, have a lot of, you know, spend a lot of time training, whether it be for a marathon, for a triathlon, or even just trying to keep up with the day-to-day fitness classes. Um, So those are, you know, that's kind of one camp that I see. And again, not that I don't see crossover, um, but then I also work with a number of women that deal with more you know, hormonal imbalances from like a sex hormone standpoint. So we could be looking at, you know, elevations or low levels of estrogen, progesterone. I see a lot of women with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, You know, again, with PCOS, we see a lot of that driven by different things. So, um, you know, women that deal with insulin resistance, which is driving their PCOS, but then also other drivers of PCOS, like, um, you know, coming off the pill, more of a post-pill PCOS situation, um, inflammatory PCOS. So maybe there's, you know, some underlying infections or, um, you know, toxins going on that could be driving things. And then there's also the adrenal side of PCOS. So someone that, you know, might be predisposed to PCOS, but again, they are dealing with loads of chronic stress that can drive their condition. Um, So that's another big condition that I see. And then kind of going back up to the whole irregular and missing periods, um, you know, I myself, which we can talk more about, but also women that I work with who um, suffer from hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is essentially the complete absence of a period period that is a result of chronic stress often paired with uh, high levels of training, overtraining and under consuming food.
0: And when you talk about stress, adrenal fatigue and amenorrhea, so absence of periods. So you're talking about stress both in terms of fitness and and overworking your body that way, as well as the mental health component, right? So the stress that's happening in their lives every single day.
1: Right, and a lot of times it's not just one factor. It's not like, oh, you know, I have a re- I had a really stressful month with work. Uh, you know, just that being the only thing, a lot of times this can be a combination of multiple things together. So, um, you know, overtraining doing really, really high intensity training, but then you pair that with under consuming food and not meeting calorie demands, being in a chronic calorie deficit. And then you're also combining like mental and emotional stress from outside life things. A lot of times all of that coming together can be this sort of, you know, recipe for the hormonal storm. Not that I don't see, um, just two of those factors being at play. You know, we can see really a combination of, of the, of the three, but a lot of times it's a nice blend between them.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about those hormones. We know as women, so many fluctuating levels, we feel differently, behave differently all throughout the month. How does stress affect our hormones and how are we balancing Mm -hmm. those hormones through diet and lifestyle?
1: No, that's a great question. Obviously, as we might expect, stress in general is really just going to completely disrupt that natural balance of hormones. So, when we've got stress going on, this, and this could be mental, this could be actual physical stress, it can be emotional stress. This is going to, you know, if we're really getting down into the nitty gritty of it without getting too nitty gritty, this is going to signal pathways. And affect different connections throughout the body. So, people might have heard of the HPA axis. This is also referred to as the um, hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And this is really the connection between the brain and the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands are um, these little triangular shaped things that sit on top of our kidneys, and they really regulate the secretion of stress hormones in our body. So when we've got stress going on, the brain can disrupt the signaling to these glands and disrupt the production of um, stress hormones. This might be an overproduction. It could be an underproduction. So that's one thing that we see. We also have the HPO axis, which is the same thing, the hypothalamus talking to the pituitary gland gland and then connecting to the ovaries. So this is where we'll start to see a disruption in things like reproductive function, our menstrual cycles, ovulation. We see some fertility issues falling into this category. Um, And then we can also think about the hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis or the HPT axis. And this is where you know we can run into issues with metabolism, unexplained weight gain, inability to lose weight, as well as some other symptoms of the thyroid. But just kind of bringing it, you know, full circle, it's that all of the stress is going to impact all of these pathways, which are then going to, you know, affect so many other areas of our body um, and cause downstream effects of all these hormonal productions. And a lot of times it starts upstairs, meaning at the level of the brain, um, you know, so it's, it's definitely something that we need to manage through our diet and lifestyle is making sure that we keep these, these um, keep stress managed, not only from a diet standpoint. So that looks like making sure we're eating enough food, in particular, a good balance of proteins and carbohydrates and fats. For women, I cannot stress how important carbohydrates and fat are for literally fueling the reproductive function in the body. Again, I could get into nitty-gritty of that if people really want to know. Um, but we also want to think about really keeping exercise in a really healthy place. So it's sort of like that Goldilocks situation where we don't want too much, we don't want nothing at all, and we really want to find a good a good place, a good balance um between not overtraining and obviously not not moving the body, because we know that's so important for us. Um, So that's two things right there. But then also, we need to think about how we're controlling our stress. And I know that that is so cliche to talk about. It's sometimes the, the thing that people don't want to address or talk about. But we truly have to be able to manage our mental and emotional stress in order to ensure that our ba- our hormones are balanced. And we, while we can't always control every single thing that's going on in our life, you know, work is going to get stressful. Family situations are going to get stressful. Your kids are going to stress you out. Things are going to co- pop up and our bodies are resilient enough to, to to work through those stressors. We are, we are equipped to do that in the right state, but that means we need to really control the other factors that are controllable to make sure that we can try and mitigate excessive levels of stress in the body, if that makes sense.
0: Totally. And I love that there's so much attention being given to the mind body connection, because people used to think there were two different things. Like it's not just enough to meditate if there's things that are going on, as you mentioned, hormonally, and vice versa. So one does affect the other. So you have to really pay attention, you know, as we say, listen to your gut, but also really listen to your hormones, because they are telling you something that's going on underneath. Um, Let's talk about our gut, actually. So what are some red flags that our gut health isn't actually healthy?
1: Oh, love this question, right? Because there's such a huge, huge connection between our gut health, you know, the, the, the famous lines are, you know, all health is, is stemming from the gut, all health is rooted in the gut. And truly, that is so true, because the the gut and the brain connect, and then the gut and all systems of the body connect. So obviously, if you're having overt digestive symptoms, right, these are going to be things that are like the big red flags of like, okay, if you're constipated, meaning you don't poop every single day. And yes, many people hear that and they go, what do you mean? I I only have a bowel movement, you know, two days a week or three days a week. And they don't realize that that's actually considered constipation, but that is actually something that is crucial. And is a huge telltale sign of our health. Like I would argue that it would be a vital sign is, are you pooping once a day? Um, so that's obviously a big sign. If you're not pooping once a day, also, if you're getting kind of irregular bowel movements, right, you're getting some very loose stools and even diarrhea, you get really bloated after you eat, you get acid reflux after you eat, you feel nauseous after you eat, you get abdominal cramping, or maybe you're <laughs> dealing with gas every single time you eat, right? These things are not normal. People think that they're normal, but they're not actually you know, normal. It's a sign that your body is dealing with some dysbiosis, some gut dysbiosis, um, so those are some of the classic signs that your gut health might not be healthy, but we also can look at a host of other signs that could represent poor gut, gut health as well that have nothing to do with your actual, you know, gut, your GI symptoms. So things like acne, that can be all different types of acne, you know, acne on the forehead, around the mouth, on the chin, on the sides of the face or along the jawline. Um, other skin issues, so things like eczema, psoriasis um, hives, things like that can be a sign that our gut health is out of whack. Um, a lot of times if you get congested or if you almost feel congested at baseline, or you almost feel like you have to clear your throat after you, you get mucus in your throat, that could be a sign of inflammation, which is rooted in gut health. um, not sleeping at night, waking up during the night, right? You, you fall asleep fine. And then somewhere between 12 to four, you're up, your mind is racing, um, huge sign of not only cortisol and hormonal imbalances, but could also be rooted in some stuff going on in the gut. Um, migraines and headaches are another big one. So again, we could look at all these things and, you know, we deal with a number of clients coming into our practice every single day who they may not have any actual symptoms of bloating or they, you know, gas or any weird GI symptoms, but they've got a bunch of these other issues. And then we take a look at what's going on in their gut and boy, it's not pretty.
0: Mm -hmm. And I love that you said bowel movements and vital signs. I feel like that's the number one question when one goes for an annual checkup or just any checkup to the doctor, they should be asking how often, what does it look like? What's the consistency? How do you feel? But that's something that I know most people feel embarrassed to talk about, but it's so crucial because it tells you so much.
1: Oh, I could not agree more. I mean... A lot of times when our clients are coming in and we have the conver- we get on the conversation about bowel movements, they said that you know they'll apologize like, "Sorry, I know this is kind of <laughs> gross, or yep. I-, I don't know if you need this, and I'm like, "Oh, this is just another day in the office for me, like bring it on. you know, I need to know everything about your your bowel habits. so <laughs> it's really <Yes>. that important.
0: <laughs> yes, and same thing for kids, too. It's one thing I like to ask, but sometimes, as you said, like parents feel so embarrassed to talk about it or oh, absolutely or they'll feel like you're going to get grossed out, and you're like, no, that's actually very telling of what's going on with the gut health of your child. Right. Let's talk about the menstrual cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately or fortunately, we deal with it every month. What should women be eating? Because we know that the cycle can differ throughout the month. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I really – I believe that we need to be eating really whole foods all throughout our cycle, right? So we need to be fueling really well with whole sources of, of carbohydrates, healthy fats, good sources of protein. And so this is important to keep all consistent throughout the cycle because you can definitely correlate the quality of one's diet to generally their their menstrual cycle, how how um, how potent their symptoms are as far as premenstrual symptoms and things like that. But there definitely can be some things that we can sort of tailor as the cycle, you know, throughout our cycle. So really the big two areas that I say could have the most impact on things that you would change would be, you know, when you're on your period and you're obviously losing blood, you're shedding your uterine lining, Loading up on more iron-rich foods can really be helpful for supporting energy levels and restoring any excessively lost levels of iron. This is especially important for women that deal with heavy menstrual cycles. So, you know, you're changing your pattern tampon more than five or six times a day. Um, So, you know, iron-rich foods like spinach, beans, really good quality red meat, um, different types of seeds like pumpkin seeds and flax seeds are all really great. And then during the period, we also want to be thinking about getting in, you know, more anti-inflammatory foods. So this is where things like wild-caught salmon can be really great, berries for all their antioxidant effects and inflammation-reducing effects, turmeric is great, turmeric in any form. Um, So these are really good things to focus on while you might be actually on your period. Now, leading up to your period, we also can really do a lot to mitigate some of the effects- of the things that we're inevitably going to experience on our periods, so this is where we want to again make sure that we're really getting in a lot of anti-inflammatory foods that I mentioned before, because right we're going to experience inflammation. What when we're shedding our uterine lining, and a lot of that inflammation is starting to build in the days before because those prostaglandins, which are um, secreted when we are shedding our uterine lining, are going to produce inflammation. And so if we can try and mitigate inflammation with, again, adding in more of those anti-inflammatory foods, that's going to be really helpful. But then other things that we can add in that are um, other vitamin categories, I should say, that are anti-inflammatory and supportive of the shutting of the lining are things like magnesium and zinc, because they are also going to be hugely involved in down-regulating that inflammation and they're heavily involved in building that uterine lining. So again, when that uterine lining sheds, we really want to replace these, these minerals. So magnesium and zinc rich foods are going to be things like lentils, nuts and seeds, dark leafy greens, you know, your spinach and kales dark chocolate. I know everyone is so excited to hear that, right? When you start to experience that craving for dark chocolate in the in the days leading up to your period, it is a real thing. And a lot of times it's thought that potentially it's because of the magnesium content that is very high in there. And we are losing a lot of magnesium and requiring extra magnesium in that in those days before it in preparation for our period. So definitely something to um not feel bad about and definitely indulge in. Make sure it's a good quality dark chocolate right, one that's free of a bunch of added ingredients and you're looking for something with raw, the 100% raw cacao above about 70% would be great. Um and then again, red meats, poultry, really great proteins. So, um again, these are all really good foods to be fueling with all throughout your cycle, but if you can put a little extra attention to them in in these two areas, And then really trying to limit a lots of refined carbohydrates and sugars in the days leading up to your period. This is truly going to have such a positive impact on the um, level of inflammation and pain that you might experience during your period. So that is some of the more nitty-gritty recommendations that I would make as far as you know throughout the menstrual cycle. But then we can also talk about, you know, how to adjust certain things throughout our cycle based on workouts and things. And I think we'll eventually get into that.
0: Yes. And all of those foods that you mentioned that are high in B vitamins, magnesium, zinc, the healthy fats, those are also unfortunately all of the things that are deficient in a typical standard American diet. So I think one of the reasons why people suffer so badly from PMS symptoms, you know, a lot of people complain that it's debilitating and it's what you mentioned, it's to do with inflammation. And so one shouldn't have to be bedridden during their period, but a lot of people are. And so I think reshifting that focus to what you just mentioned, those healthy foods and replenishing what one is deficient in should
1: hopefully significantly improve those symptoms. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I know it's sometimes really hard, especially in that week leading up to your period when you kind of just want to binge on a bunch of bread and pastries because you might feel the need to do that. And we'll talk about why that might actually be, there might be a reason behind that. But, and it's not to say that you should never allow yourself to indulge in some treats and some things that's really good for that's food for the soul. But, you know, it might just mean like, okay, instead of doing a bunch of candy or a bunch of pastries, like, Let's, let's load up on some more like whole sources of carbohydrates. So more potatoes at your meals, more fruit in your smoothie, um, things like that, that we can still satisfy those cravings, but do it in a way that's more anti-inflammatory.
0: Yep. And that's why I'm so happy that you're here because we're going to talk about why that's happening and how you can help. Yes. Um, one other question I'm curious, are these hormone balance tests? What do they tell us? But what are your thoughts on their limitations?
1: Yeah, so we can definitely look at some testing to see what your hormone levels are. A lot of women will go into their general practitioner or their gynecologist and be able to request some, um, some lab testing, some hormonal testing. So you might be able to get your estradiol, your progesterone, you know, your, lute- your um, LH hormone, your luteinizing hormone, your FSH, prolactin, if you're nervous or concerned about maybe dealing with some hormone imbalances. And by no means are these not helpful. These can be a good step for seeing if there are some hormone imbalances going on, but we can kind of miss the big picture oftentimes with some of these tests. So you wouldn't believe the number of women that come to me and say, you know, I had my hormones tested by my doctor and they said that everything looks normal, but I just feel terrible. Right. And this is where I'm like, okay, well, we need to dive a little bit deeper into maybe what's going on. And so I like to utilize some urine hormone testing. So in particular, I like to use the Dutch test, which is called, um, it's the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. And what this test is looking at via urine testing is actually some of the end metabolites of these hormones. And so while we're not getting the direct serum concentrations or the blood concentrations of these hormones, it's a little bit more of an accurate depiction of what the what your hormones are doing down their pathways, um, which can give us a lot more information. So, without getting too much into the weeds of it, again, a lot of these hormones in the blood are bound to different immunoglo- different proteins, which can maybe not give us a full representation of what is actually active in the body. What are the active hormones doing in the body? So some of these, these, these tests can be just give us a lot more information as to what are the end products of some of these hormones. So for example, someone might go to their doctor and you know, they um, they get tested for their estradiol, and their estradiol looks completely normal in the blood test. But then we actually go and do a urine test, and we're able to actually see the end products of all the different types of estradiol. So we're looking at like R two OH and R four OH and R sixteen OH, and we might not we can th- at that point be able to see which of the more protective. Estrogens are in high in in what levels, and what are the levels of the more inflammatory or more carcinogenic estrogens? And so, again, this can really help dictate our treatment and our interpretation of having high estrogen. Um, so that's one example. There, we can also look at you know, especially women that have got PCOS. You know, m- many women will go into their into their um, doctors and get their Androgen levels tested and they look normal, especially something like testosterone. But testosterone actually travels down two different pathways and we can see those in a urine test. Um, so for example, 5-ADHT, which is a more a much more potent form of testosterone. And so I've actually been able to look at some of these tests and been able to practically diagnose PCOS from that, to, whereas their doctor might not be able to see just from their serum testosterone levels what, what those, those elevated levels are doing. So I know that might have been a little more than people would want to hear, but we can just look at so much as far as hormonal imbal- imbalances with these tests and just get answers that they aren't getting from their doctors as to why their symptoms are the way they are.
0: Yes. No, thank you for clarifying. I think there is an important distinction and people should be aware of that. Definitely. Let's talk about workouts because this is a question I get all the time, right? What are some don'ts in your opinion for morning workouts? I know you're very big on that. I've seen some fun videos on your social media.
1: (laughs) Yes, I will die on this hill. I will definitely (laughs) die on this hill. Um, It's so common, right, where we come from this, these recommendations that fasted training fasted cardio makes for um you know more fat loss burning through fat stores and without getting into the weeds of it the the science behind this is just not actually the efficacy of the efficacy of this has not been shown and the impact of doing fasted workouts on hormonal health is really detrimental because we aren't considering the impacts that it can have not only on cortisol, but we can also consider the effects that it is having on a couple of neuropeptides that signal for reproductive function and ovulation. And you know, a lot of the recommendations, general sports nutrition recommendations out there have all been tested on men and they haven't really extensively been tested on women for the reason that they have a menstrual cycle and there's so many variables, but I would say that that is even more reason of why we need to be taking more precautions with what we're doing with females because we are so different. And so we know that fasted training through research is more detrimental for female athletes and it's not beneficial. So that's a major don't for me as far as women and morning workouts, because I know there's always going to be women that are going to want to work out in the morning and need to do that 5 a.m. workout. So no fasted workouts, even if it's, you know, literally you have a half of a banana, or you have a small rice cake with a little nut butter on it, or you'd have half of a protein bar, just something to signal to the brain, okay, we're safe. You know, we don't need to excessively elevate our cortisol levels because blood sugar is low. So that's a big one for me. Um, coffee is not breakfast, no matter how bad we want to believe it. I, for years, it was like getting out of bed in the morning only happened because I was going to the coffee pot. So I have been there. I understand the deep love for coffee and I still love coffee, but we have to think about the effects that that coffee can have on our our adrenal health, our hormonal health when we're already maybe potentially in a stressed body. So, right, it's cortisol is already elevated in the morning due to our natural diurnal pattern. But if we are adding in coffee with no food on board, that's just kind of adding fuel to the fire. So that is something that I'm always recommending. If you're going to choose to have coffee in the morning, you're doing it alongside some food, especially some food that is containing carbohydrates. And then you can either consume your coffee with that food or you can consume it after you finish your breakfast. So that's two. Um, I would say the another big thing is not working out or training after a poor quality night of sleep. So, right, we have this um, this mindset sometime if we can sleep when we're dead, right, like push through the pain, grind 24-7 where um, I, I can 100% relate to that. There were years where it didn't matter how many hours of sleep I got, it didn't matter how I felt. It was like my training was going to get done through hell or high water. And I, so I understand that we have that mindset, but we can be doing much more harm to our body by training through a body that is, that is not recovered and has not gotten a, a night of restorative sleep to the point where like doing the workout is probably doing more harm than if you had actually, if you would actually just sleep in a little bit later or take a morning off. So, that is sort of a big one for me. And then finally, I would just say that generally being aware of where you're at in your menstrual cycle can be really helpful for for the nature of your workout and the expectations of your workout. So, if you're hitting like the same intensities and the same workouts all month long, you're not necessarily doing Doing the best that you can for your body. So be aware of where you're at in your cycle, and we can talk a little bit more about that as far as like what might be more appropriate in the first half of your cycle versus the second half of your cycle. But just be aware of where you're at in your cycle. And for example, if you're in that luteal phase, which is the the second half of your cycle, is in particular that week before you start your period. I really don't recommend waking up at 5 a.m. and going to your hit class and going. because you're going to put a lot more stress and inflame the body more leading up to that whole phase. And you could be doing a lot, a lot more good to your body by changing your morning routine that day or honestly just taking an entire couple days off.
0: Yeah. And I think people will report that they really struggled through that workout or they felt like they were being tortured. And I think that was their body's way of saying, you're doing too much. And I prefer to do something else today.
1: And we go through like self-flagellation of, oh my gosh, I was so like my, I just performed terribly at the gym today. I felt so tired. I couldn't lift heavy. And you think it's something wrong with you. And the fact is that it's your physiology. It's your, that your, your physiology where your hormones are high, your, your progesterone is high, which is a catabolic hormone. And you're not in a position, you're not built at that time to be really excelling and building straight and maxing out because your body's trying to go into conservation and energy conservation mode in preparation for your your period. So that's the time where you need to not fight your body. You need to work with it.
0: Totally. And Abby, you touched briefly on the nutrition around your cycle and a little bit about the workouts. Let's dive right into detail about what do we need to adjust workout-wise, nutrition-wise around our menstrual cycle? And why does it matter so much?
1: Yeah, so this is definitely important because of the hormone fluctuations that happen. So the period starts on day one of bleeding, and this is considered the follicular phase of your cycle where your body is really developing an egg and preparing that egg to be released for ovulation. So during this time of our cycle, we're, we're much more like men, right? Our hormones are lower. Um, overall we've, we, we have progressively elevate, um, estrogen levels increasing, but estrogen is really beneficial for building muscle. It's, um, you're going to feel like you can push harder in your workouts. You're going to feel like you can go harder and your body's really efficient at using carbohydrates in this phase of the cycle. So this is where you can def- definitely focus on using more carbs, fueling with more carbs. Um, and this is also going to be really helpful because carbs actually fuel the production of of luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, which then make estrogen, which is what we want for ovulation. So really fueling on a lot of carbs, being able to push a little harder in your workouts is, is really the time to do this. Um, and then once we enter our second phase of our cycle, so this is going to be post-ovulation, this typically for the average woman is going to fall somewhere between day 15 or 16 to um, day you know 28 or 30 or whenever the beginning of your cycle starts. And at this time, we're slowly starting to, you know, our hormones are starting to become elevated, in particular progesterone, which is a catabolic hormone. We're not really able to access carbohydrates as well in this phase of the cycle. So this is where it kind of depends on you and what your, your goals are as far as training and performance, where if you're not a high-performing athlete and you don't really have an expectation to have to train all throughout the cycle, then this is where you can down-regulate your training, your intensity, and focus on maybe consuming more healthy fats in your diet. Not not eating carbohydrates by any means, but, you know, you can focus a little bit more on fats because um, the body can utilize free fatty acids much more efficiently in this phase of the cycle. So, you know, more avocados, more nuts and seeds, fatty, um, more fatty meats, um, oils, things like that. And whereas if you are someone that, let's say, you know, you're training for something and you can't just completely neglect your training, your training for the day, um, even though you're going to probably need to go a little bit easier, you just want to make sure that you're really fueling in, in that intra fuel, or I'm sorry, in that intra workout timeframe with more carbohydrates to support the, lack of efficiency of using carbs. So again, overall, your body's not accessing carbs as well in the luteal phase, which is why if you need to train hard, you need to add more carbs in your pre-intra and post-workout time range. But again, if you're not a high-performing athlete or training for something and you're able to just kind of slow down your training, do more restorative work, more yoga, more stretching, more walking, then you can utilize free fatty acids and more um, higher fat containing foods really efficiently at this time. So hopefully that kind of makes some sense as far as how to kind of biohack your body in the first half versus the second half as far as carbs and protein, or I'm sorry, carbs and fat. And then we also want to think about getting more protein in the second half of our cycle, because as I mentioned, progesterone, which is what is produced after we ovulate, is a, a catabolic hormone. So it's can help um, lead to more muscle breakdown and tissue breakdown. So adding more protein into the diet is really supportive there. And then overall, the last thing I'll say is that your metabolic rate in general in the second half of your cycle, so leading up to your period, is about 10 to 15% higher. So the reason that you're feeling more hungry, the reason that you're craving more carbohydrates and things in that week before your period is like literally because your metabolic rate is is elevated. And so that is the time that you should be fueling with a little bit more snacks. Have a, you know, have a couple more snacks or increase your portions a little bit at your meals to help satisfy you.
0: Perfect. And I love that you're giving carbs a good rep again. Because as you know, often it gets a bad rep, but people seem to uh, underestimate that it's a great source of energy. You just have to know when to to consume it and the right type of carbohydrate, of course. Mm -hmm. And Abby, one question I get asked all the time, favorite pre and post-workout foods for women, what are your favorites?
1: Yeah, so pre-post-workout, we can definitely... Maximize our recovery and our performance by choosing really supportive foods in these time frames. So, pre workout, you're going to be wanting to look at definitely something carbohydrate based. And if you have enough time beforehand to eat, you want to add some protein in there as well. So, again, a nice blend of carbs and protein pre workout. So, this might look like, you know, as I mentioned, a rice cake with a little bit of nut butter on it, or a banana with a half a banana with some nut butter on it, or maybe a protein shake mixed with oat milk and a piece of fruit. Um, Some turkey on a wrap, you know, the turkey's your protein, you get a nice wrap or carbohydrates from your wrap. If you have enough time to have a full meal, you know, two or so hours before, one or two hours before, you could have a bowl of oatmeal with some protein powder mixed into it, or even just a protein shake with some oatmeal, as I mentioned. So these are good for pre-workout. I really recommend not having... Really, really high fat foods or high fiber foods before a workout. Reason being that these foods are kind of harder to digest; they're slower um, in the di- they're slower in the gut, and so they might, you know, may make your stomach not feel as great if you don't have enough time to fully digest and break those things down. We want to consume things that are going to be really readily available for energy, and that's where the carbs and protein come in. And then post workout, we also want to think about carbs and protein, but we can definitely you know add some healthy fats and fiber into there as well for a more complete meal. So, it, depending on the time, the timing of your post workout meal, you know if you are going to, you know, go home right after the gym and have your post workout meal, that's where I would just recommend having a nice full meal. So that's going to look like a protein source, like chicken or salmon or a grass fed burger fillet. Um, you could have some rice alongside that or potatoes, which would be your carbohydrate. And then you want to make sure you're getting a healthy fat source in there. So maybe you slice some avocado on top of your chicken. Maybe you have some wild caught salmon, which would have some good fats in there. Maybe you um, drizzle some olive oil on top of your salad with your chicken or whatever protein you want. So again, a nice full meal post-workout is going to be great. Um, I also love recovery smoothies. So such an easy way to get a bunch of nutrients nutrients into one place. So, frozen fruit, sweet potato, you know, cooked sweet potato, or high quality protein powder, and then add in some fiber and anti-inflammatory sources. So, some spinach, some nuts and seeds like flaxseed, chia seeds, make a nice um, recovery smoothie for a bunch of nutrients. So, those are sort of my two recommendations. Now, if you don't have a lot of time and you just need to get something quick, you just want to at least try and get like a high quality protein shake in at least within 30 minutes of finishing your workout, especially for women. That's a really good start. But ideally post-workout, you really want to try and get a full meal in within an hour, of, an hour to an hour and a half of finishing your workout.
0: Great. And if you have a recipe for a smoothie that you love, I would love to
1: include that in the show notes as well. I will definitely do that. Recovery smoothie, as well as a little three-day sample meal guide that has, uh, meal plan that has some smoothie recommendations on it.
0: Wonderful! I will be sure to include all of those. Awesome. What What about macros, Abby? I know that's a word that people throw around. I think often it's misunderstood or misused. How do they differ in people?
1: Macronutrients are essentially the big nutrients that make up our calories that we eat. And they are required in the highest amounts in the body. So our carbohydrates, our proteins, and our fats are going to be the three macros. And as I mentioned, these make up our calories. So anytime you're looking at a food label, a lot of people don't necessarily understand like where those calories are coming from because there's so many things listed on the nutrition label, right? Like, you know, magnesium and iron and saturated fat and fiber and all these different things. Um, But what we really need to understand is that carbs, fat, and protein, the total carbs, total protein, and total fat are what make up those calories. And they are definitely going to differ for different people because we all have different body composition goals. We all have different body compositions themselves. We have different levels of muscle mass, and we all do different types of activity. So when I'm working with someone and we're trying to find a really personalized prescription for the macronutrients... I'm taking all those things into consideration. So, you know, are they trying to build strength? Are they trying to just maintain their weight? Are they trying to um, support their performance? And we kind of take all those different things as well as their individual biometrics and find a prescription that is really appropriate for them. Um, That's why some cookie cutter meal template on the internet is not always the best suggestion because it's not personalized for you.
0: Love that. So it sounds like when you're trying to go that route, it's
1: best to work with a professional, is that right? Absolutely. Especially if you have any type of specific goals in regards to body composition or performance, it's really important to make sure that it's specific to your needs.
0: Yep. And I love that you said goals. That's something I get asked all the time. Well, what should I eat? And so then I go, "Well, what are your goals? Are you weight losing weight? Are you trying to fix a digestive issue?" Because those it differs and the advice that you give people.
1: Yes. And and unfortunately, just, you know, piggybacking off of that, oftentimes all people want to do is lose weight, which is, you know, everyone wants to lose weight all the time. And I, by no means am against any type of weight loss. It's just that we need to really earn the right to get there. So, um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that is for what that's worth.
0: Yep, and where losing weight is not necessarily being healthy. You have to fuel in the right way. Right. Um, So what about sources of protein for women, both vegetarian and mm-hmm. non-vegetarian? What are your lists there?
1: Yeah, so for protein, definitely the 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 foods that are going to be highest in protein are going to be your animal sources. So things like chicken, turkey, um, Beef, it, primarily I would recommend a grass-fed beef. It's higher in nutrient content and it's going to have less pesticides and things in it that the more fine raised animals are going to be eating on. So grass-fed would be great. Salmon, different types of fish. Even eggs are going to fall in this category or it's different yogurts or cottage cheeses. Dairy is going to have protein in it. So that's definitely going to be for those that consume animal products. Now for vegetarian individuals this is they're going to have to get all of their protein from plant-based sources so this definitely is a little bit more of a challenge because plant-based foods are naturally much lower in protein content you know if you have um you know a half a cup of quinoa versus a salmon fillet you're probably going to get double the amount of protein in a salmon fillet so um but with that being said we can still be intentional about it and make good choices so things like beans and lentils or even those types of pasta so like a bean pasta or a lentil pasta or a chickpea pasta is going to be high in protein um we can also think about quinoa that's a type of carbohydrate which is actually a seed but it's really rich in protein among i would say it's the the more higher protein grain compared to some of the other grains that could be lower so You want to be looking for whole sources as much as possible, like a brown rice or a quinoa over like a jasmine rice or a white rice, if you are a vegetarian that's trying to get a lot of protein in. Um, The higher sources in a plant-based diet would be things like some organic tempeh or organic tofu would be really good options. Um, And then also like a good quality plant-based protein powder. So a pea protein, a brown rice protein, or even a hemp protein could be good options for you. So yeah, and then nuts and seeds, of course. So your almonds, cashews, um, nut butters. Again, these are not going to be as high as protein as some people might think because they're actually more of a fat-containing food. But in the context of uh, a plant-based diet that has a lot of other high-protein foods, it can definitely help you get there.
0: Yeah, and I think one important thing with most diets, of course, we should be focusing on variety. But I think with vegetarian especially, Variety Mm -hmm. is so important because, yeah, you're not going to be able to fill up on one thing and be able to eat that one thing all the time. You want to be getting it from different sources.
1: Right. And a lot of the foods are not always complete proteins in the way that animal sources are. So you really got to be strategic about how you're, you know, pairing things together, right? We can't just eat brown rice all day. We have to think about how we're pairing certain different, a variety of different foods together to make sure we're really getting all those complete proteins. Cause that's the biggest issue that we find in individuals that are vegan and vegetarian.
0: And Abby, let's get into some fun stuff. So lots of health trends, fads out there, right? More coming mm-hmm. each day. Like there were some that I come across and I go, gosh, I didn't even know such a thing existed. Right. So all do- the time. All the time. <laughs> and everybody has their version of what's out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um I'd love to go through a list and then you give me your thoughts on, you know, the yay or nay and, and your opinion. Sound good? Sure. Okay. Let's talk about intermittent fasting. Big word of the day.
1: Oh man. (laughs) Definitely. So yeah, intermittent fasting. This one is, uh, this'll get me going. Um, (laughs) I, I just have a hard time with, um, women doing intermittent fasting, especially athletes. Because this can be very disruptive for hormones, especially in women that are already stressed, like they already have high levels of cortisol or even low levels of cortisol, and then we um, we layer on intermittent fasting, which restricts food immediately upon waking. It can further disrupt hormonal imbalances. Now, of course, like there are situations where this might be warranted. So, individuals, women in particular, that may have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, or they have pretty significant insulin resistance, intermittent fasting could be something that's actually pretty therapeutic. But again, it's used in a therapeutic manner, and it would be something that we're using. We're doing it very strategically maybe for a few weeks to a couple months. But again, this really is tailored to the individual, and we're weighing all the other factors to ensure that their body would handle something like intermittent fasting well. Um, but as I mentioned, it can just be very disruptive for women, it actually disrupts a neuropeptide called kisspeptin, and kispeptin actually controls the production of a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH, and this literally controls ovulation. So this hormone signals for LH and FSH to signal for ovulation. And so intermittent fasting, because of the disruption that it puts on this neuropeptide, it can delay something like ovulation and lead to hormonal imbalances and reproductive imbalances and irregular cycles. So that's why I don't love intermittent fasting for women. I just find that more often it causes more harm than good, but we can still benefit from a generalized fast overnight. So a 12-hour fast where you don't eat past 7 or 8 o'clock and then you eat breakfast at 7 or 8 o'clock. That is not typically too challenging for women to achieve and it doesn't place that unnecessary burden, that stress burden on women.
0: Agreed. And I think that 14 to 16-hour fast and then people skipping breakfast, and you talked about how that's detrimental. And so that's not ne- that's not a good thing, actually. that's That's a harmful thing.
1: Yes. And there's research to show that.
0: Yeah. And what about food sensitivity tests? How do you interpret so, those as a general public or should they be avoided yeah. altogether?
1: We definitely need to um, interpret these in the context of what is going on with that patient. So I'm not going to lie. We do utilize food sensitivity testing, but it's not nearly as much as people might think we are because, Um, A lot of the food sensitivity testing out there, especially some of these retail options that are over the counter that you can go and pick up at your convenience store um, or your pharmacy are going to be, you know, IgG sensitivity testing and not to get into the weeds of it, but essentially we're looking at the production of antibodies that are produced in response to eating food. So a lot of times if you're eating any type of food and you eat that pretty regularly, your body's naturally going to produce an IgG antibody to that food, which is normal because your body is responding to what you're eating and ensuring that it's not viewing that food as an invader to the body. So a lot of times people will do food sensitivity testing and they're testing for eggs and beef and nut and almonds and all these things that they're have frequently in their diet, but it doesn't always indicate that it's actually a problem, that your body's actually having a problem with that food. And then the other thing is that when the gut is a mess, the gut is out of whack and there's a lot of intestinal permeability going on, you're likely going to flag for a lot of different foods. So again, we need to use these tests at the right time and in the right situation. And even if we do do the test, we're typically looking at much more sensitive tests that are looking at, you know, MRT testing or something like IGA testing, which was a little more um, sensitive. So it really, they can be helpful, but more often than not, it could lead to individuals just unnecessarily avoiding food and causing nutrient deficiencies, where if we are able to more so take take, um, start listening to our bodies and how we feel with food, then we can often figure out what might need to be foods that we eliminate for a t- short amount of time.
0: Yeah. And then they get these lists of foods and they're like, well, I can't eat anything. And then it's like the cycle of, you know, feeling frustrated, Which, feeling hungry, yeah. deficient. And it usually
1: makes things worse. It usually makes their situation worse because then they're not like consuming foods that are actually, containing the nutrients that support the downregulation of inflammation. So it's sort of like this vicious cycle.
0: Great point. What about collagen supplement? Another big one.
1: So collagen, um, ones that I'm not, you know, I won't die on the hill for every single person to be taking collagen, but I'm also not against it because it really depends on the person. Some of the research on the effect of collagen is, it's a little iffy on how uh, the efficacy of it but a lot of people notice benefit from it. And that's more just anecdotal responses of people noticing their, their skin being tougher, their nails growing better, their hair growing longer. And if that is the response that people have, then by all means, I I would encourage them to continue to use a collagen supplement. Um, there's also a little bit of research to show that it might be supportive for gut permeability. So helping reseal the lining, if there's been again um, damage to the intestinal lining, um, so it is definitely it's not oftentimes going to be harmful. And if someone needs to get a little extra protein in their diet, it's great, but. I don't think that it's, you know, absolutely the one thing that you're missing in your supplement regimen, if I'm just being completely honest. And also, if you are using that as a post-workout protein, we need to rethink that because collagen is not going to be supportive for muscle protein synthesis in the way that other sources of protein will.
0: Perfect. What about celery juice detox teas?
1: Oh, so... Yeah, celery juice. You know, there's been a, a lot of people commenting on noticing inflammation reduction and their skin improving. Again, it's very anecdotal. I, I have seen some situations where it can actually be pretty harmful for people. They end up getting a bunch of diarrhea or weird skin reactions. Um, people that are on medication, I wouldn't really recommend using this because it can do or using this method because it can interfere with some medications. Um, so it's definitely not something that I'm typically encouraging for individuals because I believe that we can achieve a lot of the, of the benefits of celery juicing by doing a lot of other much more sustainable and less drastic um, measures. But um, again, I'll never tell someone that if they're trying something and they feel really good doing it, that they should stop it. So I guess if it's working for you. Then you can do it, but I would just be very cautious on how long you do that because these juices have very, very, very high concentrations of you know different vitamins and minerals, and we can go overboard on those.
0: Yeah, and, and we talked. Yeah, you know, go no. Yes, I'd love to hear your next one. <laughs> no, I was going to say, and then
1: as far as the detox teas. Again, our body's always naturally detoxing. that is what our our liver is used for. So if you're kind of using a using um, a program where you're just drinking tea for an entire week, I would argue that there's a better way to therapeutically detox if you are dealing with you know the buildup of toxins and there's definitely signs that we can look for that 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 indicate that but there's also really, nice evidence-based ways that we can naturally like go through actual supportive liver detoxification. So again, if it's used, if, if there are definitely different teas that contain therapeutic herbs that are supportive of detox, for example, I sometimes will use something like dandelion root tea in clients that are dealing with sluggish bile or slow, uh, sluggish liver function or poor bile production. That can be really helpful. Um, but again, we usually have diagnostic tests to confirm that we, we're dealing with something like that. So I'm not usually recommending to, to go do some blanket detox tea that you find from an influencer on the internet, but more so work with a professional that can help evaluate for what's going on and then get you on a natural supportive detoxification program.
0: Perfect. You took all the words out of my mouth, right? We yes. see so many influencers associated with these teas. Unfortunately, a lot of young people, especially are seeing these, you know, we know they're airbrush photos. We know that they probably go on some restrictive diet before they post those photos. So they look, they're absolute slimmest, right? They're not bloated. Right. And so people think it's like the magic recipe, but it's not. And it could be harmful if you're not using it appropriately. Absolutely. Um we talked about intermittent fasting. What about prolonged fasting or these very restrictive diets? You know, we've even heard of water fasting, so you just drink water for an mm-hmm. entire week. What are your thoughts there?
1: Um again, I I think this really has to come down to the context of the of the individual. So if I'm working with a female client who is really dealing with a, t- a lot of burnout, adrenal dysfunction, they're very highly stressed, then prolonged fasting is not something that is going to be part of our protocol. Now, there are some individuals and there's a lot of research to show the impact of things like prolonged fast, three to five day fast. I've seen individuals do it. I've seen a lot of men do it and have really incredible responses from like a cogn- cognitive standpoint or if they're dealing with like toxins. Um, mold exposure, different um, long-term chronic infections that haven't cleared, fasting has shown to be, you know, somewhat effective. But um, again, I would I would really be cautious, and I can't make like a blanket recommendation on whether this is good or bad. the The fact is that there is loads of research to support fasting, but there is also loads of research to support that fasting in a specific person and in a certain context could be more harmful than good. So, um it really depends on the individual and what they're dealing with and if I'm confident that they are not in a a state that their body is dealing with a lot of other outside stress and that we the 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 cost benefit analysis to doing something like a prolonged fast is there then it would definitely be something I would try. It's just it's it's less often the case.
0: Okay, great. And if we had to take all the recommendations you made, the you know the female listeners are listening, they want to have a list of your whole food superfood supplements that they should be consuming daily. What are your sort of your your important list?
1: Yeah, I think I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. Generally speaking, anyone that tells you that there's one specific superfood or supplement that you need to be taking to achieve health, they are trying to make some money off you. So uh, that's just me being honest. I'm, I'm very transparent in that there's no perfect foods. There actually is no perfect diet either, because I believe in a nice blend of a lot of the different trendy diets out there because they all have really great components to them. So there's a lot of different, as I mentioned, you know, components of each of these diets that together make a really, a really, um, a really well-balanced diet. So we want to eat real whole foods as much as possible that come from the earth, right? Like 80 to 90% of the time, if we can be focusing on eating whole foods, we're going to be doing a really good job. And so when I when I say whole foods, I'm not just talking about eating salads all day. I'm talking about eating a wide variety of plants, yes, from different vegetables and different fruits, but also a variety of complex carbohydrates. So things like oats and rice and potatoes and quinoa, or chickpeas, um, or lentils—things that are high in healthy fats and omega threes. So things like nuts and seeds, all different types of nuts and seeds, avocados or avocado oil and olive oil, coconut oil is even great to have in there. And then we really need to make sure that we are getting in a wide variety. If we can, if we are someone that consumes animal protein. A variety of proteins. So, not just lean meats all day, right? Not just egg whites and chicken, but we need to get some of those really, you know, B12, choline, vitamin D rich and zinc rich meats in there as well. So, your grass fed beef, your bison, your wild salmon. um, These are all things that I would encourage on a daily basis. And if you're consuming a wide variety of these foods every single day, then you're going to be in a really good place. Um, You're going to be hitting your nutrient. Um, your nutrient needs for the most part. Of course, there's always cases that we need to dive deeper, but those would be a lot of the foods that I would be focusing on majority of the time. And then as far as supplements go, this really is client-focused. This is very personalized because as we know, the, the supplement industry is a, a billion-dollar industry, and there's a pill for every ill these days, and you can literally feel like you need everything that is out there, and that is just not the case. Now, There's some individuals that we do a stool test, we do a hormone test, and we actually have like concrete data to show which supplements that we need to help support them. And they might be on five to 10 supplements, but those are all temporary. That is not something that we're doing long-term. It's sort of therapeutically to address something. And usually it's not usually at the the 10 mark. I was exaggerating a little bit there, but just trying to make the point that we're usually really personalizing these supplements. But if I had to recommend some that I believe a lot of people can benefit from, something like a magnesium, especially if you deal with issues with sleep or you don't have a regular bowel movement every day, something like magnesium is a very safe thing to supplement with. Start low and see how you do. So even as low as 150 to 200 or 300 milligrams a day and see how that feels and supports you. And then also if you're someone that deals with a lot of inflammation, You know, achy joints, or you deal with um, just other generalized feelings of inflammation. Things like fish oil or turmeric can be great for reducing inflammation. I feel I feel like those are pretty. Those are supplements that we can definitely see a lot of generalized support for from a wide variety of people. But beyond that, it's super personalized.
0: Love it, and everything that you said, the majority of people will benefit from it. So definitely yes. great to
1: focus on those foods.
0: Now, Abby, where can our listeners find out more about you?
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I work alongside Kyleen in the practice forward fuel sports nutrition. So we have an Instagram account, which is at FWD fuel. And then I also have my personal account, which I share a lot of information as well, more along the women's health hormones line. So that is at Abby Grimm underscore RD. And then, of course, you can head to our website, which is fwdfuel.com, and we are going to link up that three-day sample meal plan for you, which is really a three-day meal plan that would be supportive of women who are trying to achieve hormonal balance, and we'll have some smoothie recipes in there. So that could be a great start for people.
0: Wonderful. And I will absolutely include all of those in the show notes. Awesome. Abby, it has been so fun and so informative speaking with you. Thank you for your passion and the honesty that you bring to the
1: nutrition industry. Thank you so much. I think we need to spread more truth these days with a lot of the, just the mass quantity of information that we have out there. And I just really want to try and support women the best that I can um, and help them, you know, just stop fighting against their bodies and learn to, eat for longevity and eat for for sustainability and feel good in their skin wonderful
0: and i'm so happy that more and more experts are paying attention to women's health as we know so many factors are at play and you so thoroughly spoke to those so thank you again for your knowledge and your expertise
1: oh thank you i really appreciate the
0: opportunity it's been so fun same here and to the listeners thank you so much as always for tuning in until next time Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan neal We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.